Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today I'm going to do a little bit of an update on uh, where the things have been over the last month uh, in terms of games that we run and uh, my thoughts on how those have gone. On the uh, Those are the games I run on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. And then we're going to touch on, I'll see if there's anything else we want to touch on otherwise too. Time permitting, I find myself with a uh, an afternoon where I will be doing a little bit of running around, so I thought I would take advantage of the time and record a new episode of the podcast. So here we go. All right, so, so I think the last uh, episode I recorded was around the time of the uh, gosh, beginning of August, I suppose, when uh, there was the hour or whatever it was, the um, uh, RPG a day exercise going on, and obviously, I uh, <laughs> my participation in said uh, exercise was uh, quite lacking uh, thanks to, uh, I mean, to be honest, too many other things going on. Uh, since that last recording, we've had a handful of uh, our charity uh, sessions uh, taken care of in addition to the ongoing games and in addition to some pickup games. So for the charity games, uh, we had another session of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, not Advanced, of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Uh, we had a session of uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition that was uh, an interesting one-shot playing all uh, lizard folk. Uh, we had a session of... Um, gosh, I'm trying to think what the other charity sessions were in uh, in October. Uh, or in October, in uh, August. I think... Uh, so we did... I mean, Savage Worlds was before that. Um, we had... A geez, I'm trying to even think what what they were. It has been such a blur of the last little while. I think that the there was the Conan game that we ran, um, and then I guess maybe Pathfinder Second Edition. That was the the other one. The the only ones we've had thus far have been um, a pickup session. Oh, I also played. That's right. I played in a session of uh, low fantasy gaming with. Uh, the, the donor uh, asked that I play in a game with, run by my buddy Jason Hobbs, and uh, in which um, Steve, Grodzi- sorry, Steve Grodzinski, uh, the uh, author of Low Fantasy Gaming, got to play in it as well, too. So it was pretty cool. And a fellow podcaster as well, Sean Kelly, from um, Gaming and BS. Uh, so it was a pretty cool session. Um, let's see here. Let's try and... Oh, and then in addition to that, our pickup games have included uh, two... We played Vason, which I think I talked about in the last... Um, episode, so I won't uh, revisit uh, that uh, again, but uh, other than to say that Vason was uh, really, its if you're not familiar with Vason, it's one of uh, for the Free Ligon or Free League uh, games uh, published by both Free League and uh, Modifius, and it is a Nordic uh, horror role-playing game based on their Mutant Zero uh, system, and it was a lot of fun. That was a really, really fun session to uh, to run. Um, we also have played uh, a three-part adventure with um, Green Ronin's The Expanse RPG, and that was uh, likewise a, a really, really, really good. Like we, we really have been blessed with an abundance of really great games and great systems in the last little while. And then this past weekend, I also played uh, two different sessions of Star Wars RPGs. One of them was playing Fantasy Flight's Age of Rebellion um, game, which is uh, uses the proprietary dice and the narrative kind of dice mechanic and whatnot. And I was quite familiar with that game, having run it for about two years or a year and a half uh, in a previous campaign. Uh, but then I also ran a single session of the uh, 
West End Games version of Star Wars, which uh, had, let's see here, it was a, um, it was just a pickup game, so we kind of just, you know, uh, created characters, and then I kind of came up with a a scenario for us to start playing through on the fly, and uh, the cool thing with that one was that um, one of my buddies, uh, George Strayton, who is a regular player in, in most of our games, George was actually uh, a staff employee with the West End Games, and he, he wrote uh, several of their source books, and uh, was one of the co-authors of the the expanded and updated uh, version, the, mo- the last version of the game that they published. So ex- we had playing with us because George played in that session, uh, an expert on the uh, system. So it was great because George caught a lot of stuff that I would have uh, I would have not caught because I just I had not really had a chance to read some of the more careful uh, details and some of the things that were like splitting dice pool, not splitting dice, but like how you handle multiple actions and sort of the strategy behind doing those things too. So it was really, really helpful. He also corrected something that I've had wrong since the mid eighties, which is how you handle force skills. So that was also really, really helpful. Um, So we have had a chance to get a lot of different uh, games to the table. I'm currently prepping a couple other new ones uh, to get back to the table as well, uh, including... um, uh, another session of, or another game driven by the age mechanics. If you're not familiar with the Expanse RPG, that one is driven by Green Ronin's uh, age system mechanic, which originally was uh, developed for the Dragon Age game and then expanded in Fantasy Age and in uh, Modern Age. Uh, Blue Rose uh, had a version of, of the age system uh, as well uh, for their Blue Rose setting. They're kind of like romantic. Um, uh, fantasy setting, and I may be doing just uh, you know a disservice to my description of that, but I, uh, um, yeah, I just I, I don't know that system to be honest or that setting terribly well more than what I understand the uh, advertisements to be for it. So, um, so that's a lot of different uh, things that we got to the table. What do I think about them? All right, so the um, of all the ones, to be honest, all the ones we have run have been really really fun. You know, I mean, all the games have been. Um, yeah, I mean, it helps having uh, such a terrific group to play with. I mean, the I think I could, you know, role-play a game of Monopoly with <laughs> those folks and still have a good time with it. Um, the things that really stood out uh, were, let's see here, uh, the with respect to the Expanse RPG, it was really interesting to see how the uh, stunt dice me- mechanic worked. Now, the reason I really wanted to get... Um, the expanse back to the or the expanse of the table in the first place was because I had previously run I ran Dragon's Age which used that age system years ago and I, I to be honest I don't really remember uh, it setting the world on fire or it being bad or anything like that so we had uh, we had been running a campaign with uh, modern age set in the threefold setting uh, before, uh, before the uh, quarantine or the uh, yeah the quarantine and the uh, pandemic started uh, but the um the way that uh that that game was a little rocky uh just because we had some growing pains with with uh, getting used to the system and spending stunt points and things like that so it didn't flow terribly smoothly and it felt like uh kind of like a clunky version of the a momentum mechanic from um, the D- uh, 2D20 games, the Modifius games, uh, or, or like the threat or advantage mechanic from uh, uh, Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight or um, the Genesis uh, RPG. And, um, but but I think I felt that there was still some merit to it. And part of the reason 
uh, that I placed the blame on uh, the threefold one being a little rocky because I don't think I communicated clearly sort of what my expectations were in terms of how we were going to use that and how the points were going to be used. And in Modern Age, so Modern Age is the most recent of the of those uh, age system games and it has the benefit of having, you know, standing on the shoulders of all the games that came before, um, which is cool because it, ha- you know, it benefited from a lot more development and so, and so forth and some of the innovations that were introduced in the course of the, um, uh, the development of the different uh, games, the age games, it, uh, it le- you know, added new neat mechanics. And so that's cool. The downside is, is it also means that there's a shit ton of ad- additional little, like, mini systems that were appended on you know, uh, over the course of, of the game, like the core mechanic of the age system, if you're not familiar with it, is you roll 3d6 and you, uh, one of the 3d6 is a different color. If you roll doubles on any of the dice, you take a look at that different colored dice and whatever number is on there is your stunt dice. And your stunt die give you, you take those points and then you spend them to do neat things like make an extra attack or, you know, have a beneficial effect in a non-combat scene or reduce the difficulty of the next person's role or, or give them stunt points, you know, for the next uh, uh, role that they make as well. So it's, it's kind of a neat, versatile idea. And I, um, I like how elegant um, the mechanics are. We're just using three dice and we're never looking at more. T- uh, so then that gets around some of the difficulties with, uh, like, say, I mean, the 2D20 system, you're never rolling more than five. So that caps nicely at a maximum amount as well. But with Star Wars, you can get just a shit ton of dice, and the way that they cancel, just if you're playing with actual physical dice, it can be a total nightmare to uh, to try and play in a speedy way. Um, but um, but the benefit is is that um, with um, the stunt mechanic, yeah, it's only those amount. But with uh, Modern Age, what you end up with is um, a game that now has added in. Uh, just a shit ton of extra subsystems for everything. So when um, Fantasy Age was out, Fantasy Age is the one that came after uh, Dragon Age came out. That one ended up with, I think, I think it had about maybe three or four charts, right? Like, and the charts were very, very broad. It was, it was things like combat, um, you know, uh, explore, uh, exploration, um, you know, um, social. And as, as such, like, it really didn't, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of charts you were looking through. By the time that Modern Age came out, they'd introduced a bunch of extra special stuff. So you've got, like, one for unarmed combat and one for gun combat and one for, you know, um, general combat, one for chases, one for... So it just, like, as an example um, of the the scope of the two, in, um, uh, what do you call it, in... Um, uh, Fantasy Age. I recently got the Fantasy Age. Um, what do you call it? DM strings? I didn't have it. There's about two pages worth of stunt tables in that, um, and you compare that to the Modern Age one, which has about eight. So there's just a lot more things, and it's it's great that there's a bunch of different um, specific, you know, or or specific task related uh, stunts that you can do. That's that is very very cool. The trouble I found was just that it took a long time. There's a lot of different options, so we're constantly, you know, looking at different charts, and that would get better with, you know, more familiarity with the game. But it, I found it was just ugh, like it was a lot of different things to be looking up. Um, you look up stuff in the course of playing uh, the Fantasy Flight Star Wars or the 2D20 systems uh, tw- or 2D20 games. 
like Conan or Infinity or whatnot. Like, because when you first start playing, that's just you know the nature of the, of the game, as it, you know, literally. <laughs> but I'm bum. But um, I found that the the actual uh, you know like the the number of charts that you would be going through that you would be wanting to get familiar with were dramatically less in uh, in those games as opposed to a modern age. Um, the, so then we get to cut to uh, the Expanse, and the Expanse does have more than what Fantasy Age does, but not substantially more. It, it is a much more uh, tight package where it's all in one game, and they pick only the things that are really necessary for, uh, you know, for, for that type of gameplay, like Starship Relations and Exploration and whatnot. So it was a nicer, a more restricted um, vision of the Age game, and it worked really it worked really, really well. You know, it really felt like the source material. Um, we, the players grokked what was going on. It plays very fast at the table because of the way you have a, a slate of attributes uh, that you add to the role, and then you also may have a focus, which is like what it, that, that game's skills are. And if you do have a focus, you just add two more. So it's easy to figure out what you're going to be rolling, and especially if you're rolling on roll 20, then it's even easier because it takes care of all that stuff for you. But it, it keeps the game moving pretty quickly by virtue of um, focuses only having, you know, uh, an effect of two to the dice roll. It means that characters can feel more omnicompetent, uh, you know, the way that a sci-fi character kind of should without having to delve into, you know, huge spell lists or uh, spell lists, skill lists with a bunch of different skills on them to model all the different things they can do. And um, it felt appropriate to the, to the material. And I think that uh, I... For one, I mean, I really want to get the expanse back to the table again uh, at some point because I think it would uh, it would play very very well in. Oh, the other th innovative mechanic in it is that your effectively what are your hit points are instead called fortune, and fortune can not only be it's also what you lose when you get into combat. It's also a mechanic. It's also what you use as your narrative meta currency. So you can spend that to affect your dice rolls, and that is really really cool. Um, it's a really neat mechanic, and then you refresh some of it during, uh, like when you transition from an action scene to something else, or one scene to another thing. So um, it, it, there, I don't know. It really gave the um, the game a really exciting flow that gave players some control over the narrative, but they were not so keen to be spending that stuff just uh, to affect the dice rolls. Uh, for fear of having no hit points if they got into a combat, and then they were going to take some kind of serious damage. There's two other little tricks they do in combat as well. That uh, uh, one of them is to roll over. Uh, so you, if you decide that, look, I'm going to be defeated in this, you can pick a condition instead of having like an, a default condition when you hit the zero hit points. You pick a condition which could be like unconscious or captured or dying. And then what you also do is you can add in a um, um, if you are the one who takes someone down, so if you don't roll over and someone takes you out of a, a combat, then they get to choose what thing you get, which is really cool. So like players can capture enemies and things like that. Like it's just it's it gives a lot of um, really interesting uh, narrative agency to the players in the game, which I I like a great great deal. I think it's a really cool um, it's a cool game. Like it's a really good game and a good implementation of the age mechanic. Um, I would definitely use it uh, for. Uh, I would for a more cinematic hard science fiction game uh, in future, and I think I would I would even consider trying it with Star Wars too because I think that it gives an, a good cinematic flow to the play. It um, 
the way that fortune functions as both hit points and narrative meta, meta currency gives us interesting. Um, it lets guns feel dangerous, right? Uh, which is, I think, always a challenge in uh, in those kind of games is keeping guns dangerous while making the game playable. Um, the only criticism I would have of it is there's not really a lot of defensive actions that you can take when you are targeted. If someone is targeting you and you didn't do anything beforehand to make yourself harder to hit, um, then you kind of are at the mercy of whatever they roll. And that makes sense mechanically, or at least makes sense, um, you know, in a common sense kind of way. You can't dodge bullets, but in, I mean, so many games are so back and forth and give you that option of taking um, and a step to, to make yourself more difficult to, to hit. Uh, and there are, to be clear, there is a way you could do that in the game by spending stunt points beforehand if you generated them on your last roll, or, you know, um, there is a defensive uh, st action you can take, but the yields from it are not great. It's like a, a one or a two point bonus or, or change, so it's not a huge advantage doing that. But um, in any event, that is... Um, that is the expanse. So let's talk now about uh, Star Wars. All right. Now, uh, I guess next up is uh, Star Wars. And Star Wars was, uh, we ran the West End games, like I said, and then the Fantasy Flight one. Uh, I'll go reverse order. The, the Fantasy Flight one was really interesting to, to get back to it after such a long time. Um, the, you know, there were, and it, it was really interesting in the span of the one session seeing both sides of it, uh, in the sense that I, I was reminded why I used to really love that game uh, and used to high it, hold it in uh, in a higher esteem than a lot of other role playing games, just because of some of the things that happen over the course of play. You know, those the the fact that the dice mechanics give you not just success fail results, but success and fail, and also you know a positive twist, negative twist in the in the way of. Uh, threat and advantage uh, works in that. And if you're not familiar, the there's four different types of results, broadly speaking, you can get from the dice rolls, uh, successes and failures, and um, the uh, threats and advantage. And they're independent of each other. So you could have a failure, but you could have, you know, set yourself up in a good situation for the next time, or you could succeed, but also have some shitty thing happen in, in the course of, of doing that. So it, it really can be, it's really, really great. Um, but um, the dice can also be very swingy when you start introducing, uh, especially more than one of the um, uh, of some of the more critical dice. There's different colored dice that each have names, but I never bothered to learn them. They're always just blue dice, you know, black dice are the situational modifiers. Um, yellow and red represent yellow and um, uh, green represent the dice that your characters roll for their characters' abilities, and then the ad adversarial dice are purple and red, and they're equivalent. The r uh, reds are um, parallels of the yellows, just with bad results, and the um, what do you call it? The um, um, the green ones are, are parallels of the purple ones. Just the greens have good results in the red the you know, purples have bad results uh so it was you know it was it was fun the the uh, two people who um i introduced the game to had never played it before uh so it was cool seeing uh what their reactions to it were and it was fun being back playing that game again but um we had also played the west end games version uh the uh, the night before and that has a kind of like 
uh, a way, a mechanic in the second edition going forward, there was a mechanic that was introduced that adds a bit of a, you know, a randomness kind of like wild factor in there in the form of this thing called the wild die, which can explode or can cause complications if you roll a one. It's just like very similar to the stunt dice where in your dice pool, one of your D6s is going to be a different color. But the um, the difference there is just that at least the the results are a little bit more predictable. Um, and... And there isn't the constant stream of, uh, like, the the Star Wars Fantasy Flight dice uh, results, they're very, very interesting, and they're very exciting, but I don't, I wish they didn't happen on every single dice roll, just because not every dice roll has to have, like, and now here's the twist, you know, kind of thing to it, and um, that's also the appeal of, like, I recognize that's the appeal of that particular game as well, too, so to say it can't happen on every dice roll kind of takes away from what makes that game special or make the, that version special. But for myself, having run both of them back to back, I, they're both great games. Like it's not to say that they're one's bad just for myself, that, that the novelty of the narrative dice results kind of loses its luster, um, where it just gets a little, I don't know, it gets a little grating. Um, but that's a very, very personal taste thing. It's probably because I played so much of it before. So, um, it is. It was a, a great deal of fun playing both of them. Uh, but I think the uh, the West End game, which I had not actually run before, I, I owned the original edition as a kid, but that didn't have the wild dice in it. So um, playing it now is a lot of fun. It's it's the game I really want to play more Star Wars of. I want to see more of what that game is actually like in uh, in play. Uh, so next thing I'm going to talk about, and let, let's maybe end this section here, and then I'll talk about Pathfinder Two because I do have, I think, a lot to say about my my, you know, return to Pathfinder 2, as it were. So let's save that for a separate a separate section. Okay, so the next thing, uh, uh, or the other thing we ran was uh, a one-shot of uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And uh, it was it was really, really interesting getting back to uh, Pathfinder 2nd, just because it, uh, uh, I mean, it, it honestly is one of my favorite, uh, favorite games that I, I run right now. And um, the... Uh, it, it was a good reminder of what it was that I, you know, the things that I really liked about Pathfinder in the first place. Um, and since that time, we've had someone ask about, uh, the, you know, what, what's my favorite of the games that I run? What's my favorite? And I mean, I, I'd hard, I'm really hard pressed to pick a, a single favorite from any of the really, really great games, you know, that uh, we've run the last little while. But the, um, um, the, 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 in my answer, it dawned on me that of the games that I run, Pathfinder 2E is the one that I run with the least house rules. Uh, it's, it's the closest to rules as written. I honestly don't know if there's any house rules that I use in uh, Pathfinder 2. Uh, everything is a pretty much just the way that the, the game is written. And that's not a, it's not a comment one way or the other because I don't, you know, I don't run the games as written uh, in, in those other cases. I, I have house rules in the case of 5th edition and AD&D 2nd because I want to make the game to be what I want it to, to be. Uh, and I love the games that we run. Uh, just it, it is interesting to think of that, you know, Pathfinder 2 is the one that is uh, I, I tinker with the least, at least uh, right now. Um and I think part of that is because the a lot of the the things that I like in my role playing games are kind of present in Pathfinder Second, uh, you know, which I I've talked about on the podcast quite a bit before, um, and I've, I mean I shot like a two hour overview of, of the Second Edition as well too on the on the YouTube channel, so I won't really you know go into a comprehensive kind of uh, you know spiel about what I think of uh, Pathfinder Two, but 
I'll, I'll talk about just some of the things that, like, really that that stood out as things that I remembered. Um, one of the things uh, certainly is you can um, the tools are present in Pathfinder Second to make for really, really, really exciting combats. You know, uh, in the span of the four-hour uh, session, we had effectively for the structured encounters we had three combat encounters. Um, and we had uh, one um, kind of like a chase uh, sequence, so it was kind of like a skill challenge. Um, and the combat stuff, it was uh, the first one was a big boss fight, which meant that the way boss fights work in Pathfinder Second is you have one um, oversized uh, adversary, so like it's something that is uh, like two or three levels higher than what the average party level is, and. Um, the, because of the way that the math works in that game, they become, they're hard to affect, their powers hit hard, you know, when they tag a, a player character. So they're just a, and, and particularly when it sort of overlaps with certain tiers, where the, you know, yeah, if uh, from a third to a fifth level character, the PCs in our one shot were all third level, uh, to fifth level, the characters are generally expected to have access to magic items. And magic items in, um, magic weapons at least, in uh, Pathfinder 2nd, they actually double the damage of, uh, well, they add an additional weapon dice, I should say, uh, for their weapons. So you've got a longsword that does 1d8, and it's got a, um, I, think, I can't remember if it's a potency rune or striking rune. But anyway, whatever the rune is that uh, that makes it uh, do more damage as opposed to just being a bonus to hit, uh, it does 2d8 then. Uh, similarly, a plus 2 sword would be doing uh, 3d8 damage. So... Um, when the game is, assumes that you're going to be doing that stuff and that cantrips have all, that uh, spellcasters use, the damaging ones, have all scaled up similarly too. At 5th level they get a second uh, uh, dice of damage. Um, then those adversaries uh, at least ac across the tiers are um, you know, are, are going to be hitting a lot harder and uh, also going to be uh, able to absorb a lot more hits. Um, it isn't overpowering though. Like I mean, it was, uh, I felt like the the fights were, were really uh, exciting, and the players, I think, dreaded the monster's turn. And one thing that was uh, of interest as well, too, or, or was different from uh, past experiences with uh, PF2, is that uh, we were playing with a party of three. And the party of three had one kind of like healer slash uh, damage dealer, you know, ranged guy who was playing a, a lizard folk oracle. We had one who was playing a lizard folk... Um, well, they're all lizard folks. So I don't know why I keep saying that, but it was a uh, lizard folk uh, swashbuckler, uh, and Oracle and swashbuckler are classes from the new uh, advanced players guide. And then one was playing a lizard folk champion, and um, it was uh, champions the um, Pathfinder two equivalent of paladins. And um, it was man, like it was, it was just a really, really good. Like the first fight was really good. It was interesting. Not um, like I, I have. Uh, mentioned before how much I love uh, legendary actions in D&D. Uh, &D. And I think that uh, at least with the bosses that I played with or I, I used in my D&D um, uh, &D fifth one, I felt like that was necessary, like, you know, to, to make them feel like they, they were punching uh, at their weight, I felt it was necessary to use those legendary actions. And it really made the boss fight feel different. I think that the just by virtue of how hard these things hit and how often they hit as well too just because they the 
um, in Pathfinder 2, um, everything is sort of relative to your scale or to your level. So if you are fighting something that is uh, fifth level and you are comparatively two levels lower, then you will be hit more often by that thing. It will hit you harder. And because of the way critical hits work in Pathfinder 2, it'll crit more often. So it'll do a bigger hit more often. And um, that was enough to make it really like it felt really terrifying on their round when uh, when this thing did it and uh, I, I mean I don't think that it would not be fair to the players to have a legendary actions type thing in, in that type of situation uh, I could foresee using that in a um, uh, kind of uh, what do you call it a uh, uh, let's say like a, a lower level thing or something that's equal to their level that I wanted to feel like a boss um, you could do that but I don't know I mean I think uh, the legend, as much as I really love the legendary actions, I think they're cool, uh, and I, I agree that it makes them feel like a much more present adversary for much of the f- more for more of the fight, just because they are there more often, uh, like they're having more actions throughout the the turn. Uh, I don't think that's the only way to make something feel like a boss fight. You know, I mean, it doesn't need to be constantly interrupting player actions uh, in order to do that stuff. And I don't mean that as a pejorative in any means. It's it's a really 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 exciting mechanic, and I like it a great deal. I can't use that mechanic in uh, AD&D, though, without it getting a little too gamist, and, that, and that's not what I want for that game. But, uh, you know, um, the lessons learned from using uh, boss monsters certainly could be translatable over to AD&D. You know, it's that they hit harder and they stick around a little longer just because they uh, they have that bigger bucket of hit points than what the, uh, uh, the other uh, adversaries have. But um, in any event, I mean, it, it's, um, it was a really... Uh, so that was one of the things, that, I guess, the tactical encounter with the bosses. We had one boss fight at the start, one boss fight at the end. Both of those were uh, were a lot of fun. Uh, but then we also had a um, we had a fight that was just a ton of minions, effectively. And Pathfinder 2 doesn't require minions. Like, it doesn't have minion rules. But just because um, when you assign something that is a much lower level than what the players are, um, it is... Uh, they, they just do, you know, a lot more... Um, what do you call it? Uh, the players do a lot more damage. It's the reverse of what, it, what it's like with a boss monster. So the players are able to just mow through them, uh, and it gives it that cool stormtrooper feel. And in that one, I also gave two adversaries who I can't remember if they were their level or they were one less. Um, but it was that was you know it was just ex- it gave the fight exactly what I wanted. That we started with a big boss fight, so the players knew like, boy, this is really dangerous. But then we had a fight where the players just got to beat the living shit out of a whole bunch of enemies. So they got to feel like badasses. And then with the final fight, when the stakes were really high, and they were, you know, they had recovered their MacGuffin, and they were trying to make their getaway, then we had another more challenging fight. And um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, that one was really scary too. We dropped one of the uh, adversaries. And if I'm looking at, they, they didn't get a chance to really recover much of their, um, their, uh, resources. So over the course of that like gaming day, the players faced two adversaries that were two levels above them, and then one really big uh, set piece uh, encounter that had a bunch of um, uh, lower level adversaries in it. And yeah, and, and it was just you know, it, it, uh, I, I've said about before both on this podcast and on the um, uh, on the YouTube channel, but it reminds me of all my favorite memories of writing set piece uh, encounters in uh, fourth edition. But Pathfinder 2, I think, is better than 4th uh, edition in, in many ways. Um, 
only, and I mean, that's obviously a subjective thing to say, but I think the thing that I like better about it, that's maybe the better way to put it, is that I like it better. And I think the reason is, is because there is more to the game. I feel like they've done more, given more thought into what the non-combat stuff is like and how you meld the non-combat, like the exploration, the so role-playing and stuff like that, how you um, transition from that to the combat stuff. Um, it's also, I, I like the way that Pathfinder 2 gave sort of a backdoor way of, uh, of offering powers, you know, to, uh, to non-spellcasters in this form of class feats, but they feel much less like the things you have to do. You know, they feel more like some really cool uh, options you have in your arsenal. They're every one of the class feats that we've seen, and I haven't played the, the game beyond like 6th level or 7th level, so you know we haven't seen what uh, what is going on at higher levels yet, but at, at least at those earlier levels, it's really cool to see how the, um, uh, the class options are all good kind of risk-reward things, you know, like you're, it doesn't replace your basic attack, basically, and that was the problem with, with um, D&D 4th, was just that you would never use your basic attack once you got, you know, you got your at-wells, you just use all of those, so it, it has the, uh, the feel of that, like, very tactically, you know, complex game uh, with some interesting, you know, it, it's mobile uh, because of the very, very, you know, the, the um, rarity of uh, tax of opportunity, people are moving around the board more often without having to resort to the ten foot or the five foot step that you always got in Pathfinder, which, to be honest, I always forgot about. Um, and yeah, I mean, it. it um, so that was the thing. One of the things was was that it, uh, it's really, really fun to to write for that. I also like how. The characters have, uh, even at low levels, like at third level, the characters felt, um, it felt like a really meaty combat, you know, like uh, each of them, where I wasn't worried about doing two points too much of damage or, you know, rolling really good on one attack and then suddenly the characters were down. Like, the characters are intended to sort of, to be around, you know, like the, not, the, the, the combats um, and the violence encounters are intended to have uh, some, you know, if you're designing them to be an equal level, they're designed to, to last for a while, right? Like they're, they're designed to be, uh, um, something that, um, you know, that uh, will last more than just one or two rounds. Um, it, it means that you're not doing quite the same kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Like, um, random encounters that are just random difficulty and stuff like that, the way that you do in, um, in uh, AD and D, although or in fifth edition, I mean, and you, but you could still do that. Uh, it's just it means that um, the uh, the the set the pieces of the combat encounters. Uh, so I may have kind of lost my train of thought there uh, <laughs> because I had a longer pause between the, that last segment and this one. But the long and the short of it, I suppose, is um, is that I obviously, I mean, combat in Pathfinder Second is uh, I really, really enjoy it. I feel that um, I guess the other thing I'll, I'll say is and this wasn't something that came in the course of preparing or reviewing the material again. It was uh, the actual play, which is obviously you know always an important thing uh, for me to consider how uh, how the actual play uh, functions. And the um, man, the uh, pace of of play was really good. 
uh, you know, and I mean, I don't know if I've ever felt that Pathfinder 2, uh, that the combat lagged in it, uh, necessarily, but I mean, like, it's like a lot of, I mean, like a lot of modern games, uh, actually, I don't know, I'm trying to, th- I was going to say that, you know, I think it, you need to allow, like, an hour for combat, but I don't know if that's true, you know, I, I think, like, even the bigger combat, it only lasted, I don't think it even lasted an hour, uh, you know, our biggest one that had a ton of uh, minions that were around, or I, I'm going to call them minions, and I know, you know, there's not minion rules, but the relative uh, minions, that didn't take all that long, like, you know, it was more than enough time for ample amounts of story and explanation and, you know, uh, whatnot for, uh, and role-playing in the course of the, uh, the four hours. Uh, the thing that took the longest was the description, pro- was probably the description of the, um, of the chase, uh, and for that one, we used the the rules are out of the game mastery guide that came out recently, uh, and the I mean not recent I guess the most recent stuff is the advanced players guide. Um, although at the time of recording, that's not true either because there's some other um, lost something uh, these uh, thinner um, hardbacks that are coming out. Um, but in any event, the um, the uh, what do you call it the um, uh, the chase rules that were from the game mastery guide were um, also duplicated into these chase cards, and they've had chase cards in the original, um, or in like Pathfinder One as well too. And I have them, but to be honest, I've never read them, and so I don't really know quite how they're supposed to play out. So this may very well be the same as the as the previous stuff, but it just um, it was really, really, really cool. Like, and the. I'm going to try and describe why I felt that they were, they worked so well. Um, we were playing online, so I didn't have the opportunity to use them as a visual cue. But like the neat thing is, is as you what the, each of the cards has is some challenge that has to be overcome with a skill check, you know. And uh, it's not just one skill check. Like uh, the chase rules take advantage of the um, critical hit mechanics in or the critical mechanics in um, in Pathfinder Two where if you uh, roll 10 higher than your target number, then you score a critical. And uh, the in the chase rules, what you need to do is generally to get past each challenge, you need to generate a number of uh, chase points equal to the number of uh, people in your party. And the way that uh, you get them is if you roll a success, then you get a uh, chase point towards it. If you rolled a critical success, you get two chase points towards it. And if you rolled a critical failure, which is 10 under the uh, target number, then uh, you lose a chase point. And the, uh, you know, the things that uh, are, uh, that we used for it were all from the wilderness part of the chase rules. And it was things like brambles or downpour or a flooded, you know, river or whatever. And uh, all the the nice thing with the the rules is that all the DCs are relevant are relative to your to the level uh, of the characters. So you can easily, if you want to use something that's either higher or lower level uh, thematically, uh, you can just use it. And re, re, if you want it to still be a, a challenge, you can adjust the levels. Um, I took it a little bit further, and what I did is I visualized like uh, setting out these cards in a path, you know, that you would be following along one to next to next to next. And, uh, what I did is I put forking, um, uh, paths in it as well so that there were different ones the players could, could go. So that they just decided to, you know, um, have the challenge of one thing versus another thing. Um, what I didn't incorporate was the consequences of critical failures and, uh, other than just losing a chase point and, 
I, it's a, that was a lost opportunity because it man, like you could have done some really fun things with that. Uh, I think if, um, if you had incorporated like, you know, a random encounter or some kind of like setback that means you have to go back all, you know, you can't take this path and you need to go back along the, the forked path or whatever. Um, but there's, I mean, that's maybe a little extreme, but the, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was, um, it was really fun because we, I also gave the players uh, an opportunity to choose one uh, challenge where they could sit it out all together. And uh, otherwise everyone had to take a turn at uh, trying something. And then we just sort of passed the narrative around and the players described what was going on. And I added my two cents and whatnot. And they made the decision of how to, you know, how to approach things. They made use of some of their abilities as well. Uh, they improvised some stuff as well too. Like they pitched extra skills to use like our, you know, um, Oracle of Bones, uh, he decided to uh, use occultism when they were making their way through this really creepy um, uh, forest or jungle. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, because we'd already narratively established that that character actually had passed through this region before. And uh, he's like, oh, I, you know, I, I want to try and remember some of the evil things or whatnot, some of the things that I, I uh, encountered here before. So we're like, yep, absolutely. You know, because uh, there's nothing, I mean, who cares? You want the players to succeed at this stuff. You don't want to force them to just make shitty rolls because all you're trying to do is just, that's really just um, weighing things in terms of the, uh, the failure. Um, that's not to say that they should be able to, you know, constantly go to their most favorable skill or in our AD&D game, as we call it, why have hunting? <laughs> so... Um, but it, it really made for a fun, like, uh, a change up. Um, and I've been playing, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, Spider-Man, the Sony Spider-Man video game recently. It was on over the long weekend. It was on for like, I think like 10 bucks or something like that. So I, I picked it up and finally started playing and I've been really, really, really enjoying it. And some of the things I've been thinking about is about why, you know, I've been enjoying it are related to how the game, uh, keeps things interesting. You're not doing any one thing for too, too long. Like you definitely have a lot of options for what you want to be doing, for how you want to be engaging the material, going through the story and, and, and whatnot. But there is lots of opportunities for diversions and for things that are just, you know, um, it's something to, to change up the, um, the routine. So sometimes, sometimes it's forced. So like you have to go through certain scenes with Mary Jane and it's unfortunate that, um, you know, in, in the game, uh, in, this is in the video game, mind you, so they, there are these scenes where you have to play as Mary Jane, and, like, I, I get what they're there to do is so that you experience the story rather than having to play through it, but the trouble is, is she's just, she plays, like, a much, much, much shittier version of Spider-Man, and you have to go through this stealth stuff, and you cannot avoid it, like, it's just, it's part of the game, you have to get it, so after, like, the first couple of times, it was super easy, and, and you, it's like, all right, well, this is, this is a nice diversion, but as the difficulty right goes up on it um it's frustrating uh and so i found myself and it's unfortunate that they linked those frustrating scenes to scenes with a female character because like i don't want it to sound like i don't play as mary jane i want to play only as spider-man it's just like i don't want to fucking sneak around as anybody like i give, let me do that as spider-man uh and I'll, I'll be all over that but you know uh if you're the thing with the rest of the game is the more the difficulty ratchets up, the more that your character rises to meet it as they get more skills and get more gadgets and shit like that, and you get better at the game. When you only rarely play as, as Mary Jane and then you're suddenly thrown in and there's been no material change, and that's actually not true either. Uh, hold on, I'm, I'm being unfair to the game because you do actually get some additional abilities for stealthing, so I stand corrected. Maybe I was just in a bad mood. Um, 
But I mean, I'll play that again tonight and see see how I feel. But in any event, my, my point being is that um, apart from my apparently uh, baseless criticism of their uh, Mary Jane uh, sequences, um, the game got me thinking about how uh, it was. It's cool to get, if you you know, especially for for gamist type games like Pathfinder Two, where you can make fun kind of mini games out of stuff. It's fun, you know. I mean, like it's it's fun to have diversions. It also means, I guess, like the, the my you know response to that one Mary Jane one is also that. A, you know, too much of a good thing can be, um, you know, can be uh, bad as well. Uh, so you got to be careful with that. But I mean, it was a lot of fun for uh, to to play that sort of, you know, diversion and that sort of different, um, you know, to have that different experience with the uh, the character. Uh, and also in the Pathfinder Two one, to make use of those chase rules because it was uh, it was a cool change, a cool change up from what uh, you know what we would normally do. Um, and and it gave it a really good game structure. So players were making decisions that also really linked heavily to the narrative. So it, it really, um, you know, with in the game master guide, they introduced a whole bunch of these different things. And to be honest, they they really kind of boil down to more um, nuanced versions of the skill challenges from fourth edition. But I really love the skill challenges in fourth edition. I thought they were really good, and and I think that uh, especially with the innovations that uh, Pathfinder Two has introduced. Uh, to the formula for that and the ways, uh, especially even just having the critical success, critical failure stuff, uh, that stuff is pretty great, you know, and um, it makes for a, a nice, another sort of space that you can design game mechanics and, and, and game out certain things, you know, um, uh, because, like, it's there's nothing wrong with, with doing uh, just narrative and, and uh, the simulation and stuff. I love my AD&D games. Um, you know, my, both the campaigns that I'm running, they're a ton of fun, and the, the rules are a huge reason why the games uh, are as um, successful as, as what they have been. Uh, but it's also nice to, you know, I really enjoy uh, writing those kind of, you know, crunchy, tactical kind of stuff, too. Like, I, I like uh, writing... Um, Having a game that allows for the players to have enough hit points to be able to, to you know, um, to not just die when they misjudge an encounter, uh, to see that up and down as as healers, uh, you know, distribute, um, you know, uh, at lower levels um, or even mid levels in AD and D, healing mid mid combat healing really usually isn't a thing. You know, you're not um, in the not in the sense that the way it was in say fourth edition D and D where it was like. You know, I mean, it was like World of Warcraft, where like the healers were there, to keep spamming heals out to keep the, you know, the other party members up long enough to down the adversaries. And um, I don't want that to sound like I'm criticizing that for that. It's just that's what it was. And uh, you know, I had a shit ton of fun playing that style of of uh, combat, especially um, you know uh, the Bosque fights in 4th edition in World of Warcraft there it was a really really fun thing and Pathfinder 2 feels a little closer to that where mid-session heals really can make a difference or not mid-session but mid-combat heals can make a difference so um, you know for the classes that do specialize in healing uh, and have access to healing which is actually a lot more the clerics are, are you know hands down probably the best at it but they um, they've done a nice job to open that possibility uh like the the possibility for a lot more uh, characters to be potentially healers, you know, anything that has access to uh, a divine list, like which could be a sorcerer, could be a uh, witch, could be a um, uh, what do you call it? It's not a druid. Zeral primal. 
Um, it could be a... I'm trying to think what other ones are in the spell. An alchemist really can't be your healer, I don't think. Um, we have, we've had a bomber, so maybe I'm, I'm mistaken about that, but I don't feel like they could do that terribly well. There's a new class called the Investigator that apparently has like a Chirurgeon build, but I think they'd probably be a backup healer or, or mid, you know, between encounter healer more so than a mid-session healer. But in any event, it's just, it's really neat that, you know, you can make such a variety of characters. Oracles can now be uh, totally capable healers. Uh, so it means that those characters who do have that as their shtick, you know, as that as their niche thing, um, you have lots of options for, uh, you know, lots of opportunities to really feel like you make a difference in the fight beyond just, you know, um, going between sessions and talking people up uh, with their hit points. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's lots of cool uh, spells that uh, clerics have in uh, AD&D as well, but it is pretty freaking awesome that heals mean that much in, in PF2, you know, uh, and, but it's, yeah, but it doesn't feel as regimented, I mean, probably because of the lack of powers, and the, the more options to customize uh, story elements about the character, the, the thing that I, I just, I really love about that, um, you know, the Pathfinder 2nd Edition as well is that a lot of the opportunity, and this is a credit to uh, the designers uh, because it really runs counter to their, uh, what do you call it, to, so I think how uh, Pathfinder 1 was was built. You know, they, they the joke being that Pathfinder was Mathfinder. Um, Pathfinder 2 really deals away with, and I've talked about this before, so maybe I'll leave it after saying this, but it deals with a lot of those uh, nonsense uh, math uh, feats, you know? Um, so you're, you're not just picking something that just gives you a, f a flat arithmetic uh, bonus, you know? Um, you're getting something that gives you something interesting to do, uh, which is what I liked about 5th uh, Edition's feats and is, is something I, I really like about Pathfinder. You, you also get more of them too, right? So... Um, but you don't get so many that you feel overburdened. Like I had it in my head, I think at, when I was away from Pathfinder 2 for a while, that making characters is so complicated and it's such a complicated game and blah, 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 uh, in comparison to AD&D and having to sit down and having to make a bunch of characters forward again, and then going back to it after the session and reading a lot more, that's totally not right. Like it's, it's very easy. You're picking at first level, uh, like, th uh, two feats, uh, at most, um, uh, that's not at most. You're picking two on average, I think, and you're picking uh, four at most, uh, depending if you got a classic, it gives you a class one at first level, if you do get a uh, ancestry feat at first level, and if you get a, uh, oh, maybe it's only three, and if you get as a human, you get a general feat or a skill feat. So character creation is very easy. Uh, the math is very easy to put together. Um, the, you, the game... Um, allows you to be good at more than one thing uh so you can um you're not in fear of making myopic characters who are only good at one thing and suck at most skills so that's also really really cool um and i, I love the way that the background has make, uh, an effect on your skills as or your, your stats as does your class um it all sort of fits together into this really interesting combo so you can make some really really interesting characters without being i think overburdened with the like class or the feet chains that you had in other ones in other words it's just it i think it is a very easy game to get into and maybe at higher levels things get complicated but i mean that's true in any role-playing game so I, i'm not sure that's a you know a fair criticism of uh, of this particular game but in any event 
the long and the short of it is, is that this has been a wonderful uh, reminder for me of, of how much I really enjoy that game and how much I enjoy writing stuff for it. You know, um, I, I, I think that um, my next thing I'm going to do with Pathfinder is going to try something a little more investigative and a little more to lean into some of the non-combat stuff. I'm going to have some combat stuff in there as well, too, because it's a shit ton of fun in that game. But it's not going to be quite as combat heavy as what some of the other ones have to see how the system like if the game there supports and gives um, fun benefit to players, I guess what I mean is that it, to have the players engage with the game part of the game rather than just role-playing, right? Like Call of Cthulhu does not require a great deal of mechanics because all you need is, what, what's going to be happening is mostly the players talking and going to NPCs and the odd dice roll. Um, in contrast, I want to see if Pathfinder, if more of the things that you can do as as a cool badass adventurer whether that uh, inter interacts with uh your um what do you call it with your uh, skills uh especially with the like the critical success critical failure kind of stuff so anyway uh, more to come on that but uh, the long and the short of it is is that it it i think it's a boy it's it's a really really good and fun game if if you are a fan of uh fifth edition uh if you're a fan of um fourth uh if you're a fan of uh third edition or pathfinder you know and you have not given uh, pathfinder 2 a look um what i would suggest is look at the lower levels look and see what the lower levels look like for you and what sort of the game experience and gameplay would be like because the lower levels in pathfinder 2 feel an awful lot like third to fifth in um in say like uh, AD&D or uh D &D, uh um D &D fifth they they feel like your character's got uh, some interesting things they can do. They're competent. There's things that are tougher than the, the the tougher that they're tougher than. There's things that they are more tough th that are more tough than them. So it they feel like they've got that space in the world where they are adventurers, where as opposed to first level D and D fourth, uh, sorry, first level D and D fifth, first level A D D characters, which are decidedly at the bottom of the heap, where they're at the very at the very best, they're about average with. Uh, a lot of other things like uh, you know uh, goblins and kobolds and, and so forth so that's i don't think is the case with uh, pf2 so anyway if you haven't checked it out uh the archives of nethys is where you can uh, access all of those rules um and or i mean there's shit tons of people playing it but even just checking it out like i think it's it is definitely worth a uh a look it may not be for you you know a lot of my friends have uh said i like playing it i, I wouldn't want to run it um but um I think that those low level, uh, especially the low level play, is, is to give you a good sense. And um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking about PF2 because otherwise I'm gonna keep talking about it and never get it out of the Jeep. But um, let's move on to the next topic, which is DC Heroes. All right. So next up is uh, actually a, a recent one shot. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a one shot; it was a pickup session really more than anything, but we played a pickup session of Mayfair Games um, DC Heroes RPG. And uh, this uh, game is the, it is a contemporary of the um, classic Marvel superhero RPG from um, TSR. Uh, it came out a year after the original box set, where the first, uh, <laughs> excuse me, my goodness, um, the first uh box set for DC Heroes came out a year after the original uh, Marvel Super Heroes basic set, and then um, a, a revised version came out, I believe, in either 87 or 89. I think it's 87. 
Uh, but in any event, um, the 87, the second edition of the box set is the one that uh, I uh, ran. Uh, I owned the first edition, but it was... It, DC Heroes uh, was this, <laughs> like I mean to be honest, it it sort of sort of ends up being a curse of the uh, DC um, uh, RPGs for their publishers. Uh, the first so D, uh, Mayfair Games published the uh, the DC Heroes adventure, and it was uh, a unique system for it. Uh, and there were just some elements of it that didn't work terribly well in the first edition. Uh, so the game itself needed a little bit of work to uh, to to get into sort of a the fighting form that it, it was by the second edition, uh, but the the other thing was that the um, the uh, first edition came out uh, shortly either it's either it, well, it must have been in production while the classic uh, cl- uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths miniseries by uh, George uh, Marv Wolfman and uh, George Perez. Was uh, was in the process of being published, and if you're familiar with DC Comics history whatsoever, Crisis. I mean, broadly speaking, there's been a bunch of uh, like events afterwards that have kind of tried to follow on on the success of Crisis. But broadly speaking, the um, the DC history could be for a very very long time divided into pre-Crisis and post-Crisis, uh, and the reason being is because they completely reworked the world um, prior to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, thing that the characters it was sort of roughly assumed that their all their adventures had taken place like anything that had been published over the you know 40 or uh, 50 years leading up to crisis um, all was quote in canon you know uh, and it was all part of what had what had happened um, they also to, to explain things like you know Superman being around in World War two and Batman being around in the 50s and whatnot uh, but still active in the in the eighties, they introduced this concept of different Earths. You know, it's a concept that's been played on in, in uh, most comics uh, since. But uh, DC used to have these great either like imaginary stories that would take place, you know, just wherever, um, or they would have um, specific Earths that different uh, groups of uh, superheroes and supervillains would be located on. Or you know, they had Earth One, Earth Two, Earth Three, Earth X, which was originally going to be called Earth Swastika, but uh, the uh, editor was like, there's no fucking way we're having a swastika in our comics, uh, at least not an, an Earth themed after it. Um, and the. I'm trying to think what else they had. They also had um, Earth. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember. Earth Z, I think, was the cartoon one. No, that's not right. Uh, but anyway, there was one where Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew was located. So they had all these different things, and they would have lots of, you know, one of the ways that they would mine that concept for um, for story ideas was crossovers. Every year the Justice League would have a crossover with the Justice Society and then as they were going on too and as DC uh, grew more and more successful and was acquiring more older companies, they started incorporating older, uh, what do you call it, older um, comic properties into it and introducing them as you know, us characters from another Earth. So we met the Seven Soldiers of Victory at one point. We met the um, uh, Freedom Fighters. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a fun concept. Crisis did away with all that, though. They felt it was too confusing and to, to streamline the continuity. Uh, and they I'd introduced that there were basically had this whole maxi series that was a lot of fun to read and with amazing art by uh, George Perez. Um, and it basically condensed all of the Earths down into one. So now instead of having, 
you know, a multitude of, of different Earths, there was one, and there was one history. Trouble being is that the original box set of the uh, of the the DC Adventures game, or DC not Adventures, DC Heroes game. DC Adventures is the one that was published by Green Ronin a couple years later, and they actually had a similar kind of continuity trap because at the time or while they were publishing uh, their material, DC went through this sudden um, revision known as Rebirth, and it did kind of the same thing that Crisis did, where it sort of reworked everything's history to try and be more streamlined and more uh, simple. Uh, so that by the time that the last of the Green Ronin books were out, suddenly they weren't reflective of what was the actual comic reality. So it's two different first editions of a DC uh, game where by the time it came out, it was uh, reflective of an of older period. Now, the uh, DC Heroes second edition, though, did come out after Crisis. It updated everything. It, uh, it took a lot of the ideas that had been introduced over the course of the uh, uh, the game's uh, life cycle, uh, where they reworked certain rules, like they reworked the rules for gadgets, uh, they introduced a whole bunch of new powers. DC Heroes, at its core, didn't function the way that um, like uh, a game like Champions or Mutants and Masterminds does, where you have a base power like you know blast or like you know damage, and then you apply modifiers to it to get the specific type of blast that you want. Instead of that, they just say it's, you know, ice manipulation, which lets you do X, Y, Z things, or you know, energy blast, or uh, for a long time they called it bio-energy blast in the uh, in the first series, and they changed that to energy blast, and then but there's an energy blast power, there's a lightning power, which functions pretty much the same, but it does, you know, electricity damage too. So it it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an unusual uh, the, for the power list, it's a bit of an unusual hodgepodge of um, specific names but, I mean, you can think of it like a bunch of pre-built powers. And the, the game does also feature an um, advantages and limitations uh, set of rules as well, too, which are much looser than what Champions or Mutants Masterminds have. But it allows you to tweak the powers to, be, to function the way you want. Like, for instance, the 90s Superboy, uh, he has pretty powerful telekinesis, but he can't do it at range. He has to do it at, uh, at short range. So the uh, the way that you would build that is you'd give them telekinesis, but it would have a limitation of uh, range touch, and that's kind of you know that's the uh, the basics for for powers and such behind the game. Um, the game also um, let's see here uh, it featured a really unusual uh, but very uh, clean uh, system uh, which was, has become known as the Mayfair Exponential Growth System, the Megs system. Um, or maybe it's the game system, a Mayfair Exponential Game System. Um, but the way that it worked is basically you would have uh, what are called attribute points or APs uh, that would measure all of your stats. You had nine stats, uh, three physical, three mental, three spiritual, and then those would be divided into three acting, three effect, and three resisting things. So in um, the physical attributes, you had uh, dexterity, strength, and body. For mental, you had uh, intelligence, um, willpower, and mind. And for mystical, you had influence, aura, and spirit. So the final ones, the resistance had uh, resistance abilities. They also doubled up as a um, as your hit points effectively. So you had body, mind, spirit, and you take damage there. Uh, There's also an initiative stat, which was uh, the total of all of your acting uh, attributes. 
So that would be your dexterity, your intelligence, and your influence. Uh, plus, there were certain powers or abilities that would modify that. If you had uh, training in martial arts, you'd add plus two to your initiative. If you had training in uh, lightning, if you had the uh, um, advantage called uh, lightning reflexes, uh, you would get that as well, get plus two. And if you had um, super speed, uh, you would also add that flat to your stats. So uh, it allowed more competent um, heroes or characters to act a lot faster than what uh, characters who were, um, you know, than like normal characters. You know, if, if the average of, um, of any normal human, you know, quote unquote, in, the, in that game was had an AP of two. Uh, if you're quite good, you'd have an AP of three, and then a maximum human was either five or six, depending on the stat. Uh, if you're a hero and you got, like, say, Batman's dexterity of ten, you can see how you're already miles ahead of where a normal person would be, so Batman's almost always going to be able to act first. Um, the, the other thing is, in measuring your attribute points, every step up, uh, like every uh, number that you'd go up, would be a doubling of the previous number. So uh, a person with, say, a strength of three would have be able to lift twice as much as the person with the strength of two. Uh, a lightning blast that did eight points, uh, you know, had uh, eight um, as the effect, um, that would be twice as effective as an, a lightning of seven. And so forth. So that, and there's some really interesting mathematical tricks you could do uh, as a result of that uh, that setup. So the, the game had a, it, it did a really, really good job of capturing uh, a range of possibilities uh, that would allow you to model everything from Robin the Boy Wonder all the way up to Superman, you know, and um, many things were, the difficulty of a lot of tasks and such were all relative to your character as opposed to, you know, the, um, as opposed to just like your character standing alone. An example I used in our, our actual play was how you know, if uh, Aunt May in uh, Marvel, if Aunt May is picking a fight with another old lady at Bingo, she is rolling against her feeble fighting skill to try and hit her. Uh, conversely, if she, well, I mean, and similarly, if she's attacking Galactus, she's still fighting and rolling against the same thing. The Marvel superhero game um, from TSR, all it really cares about is what your character's specific abilities are, and then it, it relies on the other, the target of your uh, attack. Um, having, you know, taking some kind of uh, defensive measures if they choose to. So what that means is that Spider-Man, you know, with uh, or Captain America with a, a really decent uh, fighting of, I think, amazing uh, 50, then he's going to hit, regardless of who he's fighting, he's more often than not going to hit unless those targets uh, take some kind of defensive steps like dodging or blocking or whatever. Um, in the case of uh, DC Adventures, though, or DC Heroes, what it uh, your chances of success are always in relation to what your adversary is doing. So it is, you know, Aunt May fighting another old lady, probably a decent chance, assuming they've both got equal, you know, fighting capabilities, they're going to be, there's going to be a 50% chance probably that she's going to be able to hit her, absent any other factors. Um, whereas if Aunt May is fighting, say, you know, Galactus or fighting Spider-Man, she decides to pick a fight with Peter. Peter, I'm sick of you sn sneaking out. It's time to throw down. Um, the likelihood of her hitting is quite low because Spider-Man is probably going to have a much better uh, dexterity than what she is. So the um, what that does is it it allows um, you know in in Marvel superheroes if you're playing street level characters 
a lot of those lower level stats just don't have a very good chance of, of succeeding. So you kind of can feel like a chump sometimes. Um, whereas because everything is relative in DC Heroes, it allows those um, even street level heroes. If if you have a street level hero versus say like the Green Lantern, you know, um, then yeah, they're they're probably going to be that will be a difficult fight for them to pull out of. But it allows them in comparison to say you know gangsters or thugs or whatever, um, you know, criminals, uh, normal you know non metahuman criminals. They're going to kick the shit out of them. They're going to be able to feel like really you know, badass heroes. And that I think is great. I mean, it's a it's a really really clever way to uh, uh, to allow you to have one game that can model all these different things. Um, so, and then uh, what else do we need to know? I think that's oh, and then task resolution in the game is uh, you roll two d ten, and uh, if you happen to roll any doubles other than double ones, you get a choice to roll again. Uh, normally, what um, if you're going against uh, an average or contesting against an average person, uh, you will be wanting to roll an 11 or higher, and then um, there's a table you look at that will give you the the, rel- the relative difficulties. Uh, so, you know, if something's more powerful, you may need to roll a higher number. If you are more capable than they are, then you may need to roll a lower number. So it is, um, like I said, I mean, it's, it's a very... Oh, and then so once you roll on your uh, success chart... You then roll on the. Um, you then compare your results to the results table. You take a look at your uh, effect value compared to the resistance value, and that can be a physical fight kind of thing. But it can be even like contesting, you know, matching wits or things like that. That stuff you could uh, easily model with the uh, with those rules. It's it, it and then uh, what you look at is what are the results of it. You, it's called the result APs, and that will tell you. Um, you know what uh, what the effect is. You're not rolling dice for an effect. You're just using that. The table has um, columns and uh, and rows and whatnot too. And there are neat tricks you can do to uh, to result in column shifts. If you beat the target number uh, for your roll by two, every two you beat it by, well, starting at eleven, uh, you get to add um, another uh, two to the result, uh, or so you get to add another um, uh, column shift. So you get to try and get a better result. So call, moving around on the table and adjusting your your abilities, because you can spend uh, the only other resource I haven't mentioned is the hero points. And uh, hero points are, are the narrative meta currency in that game, and you can spend them to uh, adjust your um, your stats, so that when you are making your rolls, uh, you are actually rolling against a, a higher number or Conversely, the people who are targeting you are rolling against a higher number. So there's this interesting like bidding sub mechanic that kind of or sub game that kind of goes on, where characters are spending points to uh, to try and um, you know uh, tag their hits or, or affect their results or, or whatnot. And it's really interesting. I mean, it uh, uh, seeing the uh, the one session in play, I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, so. That is the game, and I'm, I'm may have done a poor job of uh, of describing it. My apologies if I uh, if I did not do the game justice. It sounds, uh, it, or I should say, it likely sounds. If I did do a poor job of explaining it, it is likely that I did a poor job rather than the game is is uh, too complicated. Uh, honestly, the game is is uh, fairly uh, it's fairly easy to parse. You know, like the game is is not a uh, a very complicated thing uh, once you get the hang of it. 
Um, our players were playing like pros by the time, uh, you know, the end of our first session of it. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was really good. So let's talk about the actual session now. All right, so let's talk about uh, the actual play of uh, DC Heroes. So um, the players we had, none of them were familiar with the game. Uh, none of them were real. One of them was a moderate comic fan, but uh, not uh, not huge. Uh, and um, so I'd say none of them were particularly familiar with the uh, characters we ended up playing, which was the um, Suicide Squad, uh, the 80s version of the Suicide Squad, uh, <laughs> mind you. So... Um, it was, it was interesting to see not only uh, people who were not familiar with these characters other than, at best, peripherally um, get attached to these characters over the course of the session and um, and really learn to master kind of the system so quickly, too. So the players I had were, uh, let's see, my buddies, uh, Arlen, Dave, and John, who are regular uh, fixtures on the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Um, all three of them played... Uh, Dave played Bronze Tiger, um, the uh, badass martial artist and uh, often squad leader, at least at the time. Um, Arlen played Deadshot, the uh, uh, killer, you know, marksman and Batman villain. And John picked, actually, Shade the Changing Man, this uh, unusual uh, Steve Ditko character that was uh, created in the uh, in the 60s, along when uh, he moved over to... Marvel, 60s or 70s? I don't know. I mean, I know whenever it was that he came to Marvel, uh, it was in the slate of like the question, Shade the Changing Man, and um, uh, Blue Beetle, uh, the reinvention of Blue Beetle. So, the um, uh, what we did is we went through and explained kind of how the, the game worked. We had everyone select from the characters that I sort of had uh, available uh, for it for that I intend to use in a uh, uh, in an adventure, actually. And um, then once we went through, we just kind of... I, I didn't know how long it was going to take, so I just said, all right, well, let's have... Uh, we'll do... Rather than you guys just punching through a bunch of villains, let's just have you guys go against each other. It's a training session, last man standing. So we... Uh, the, scenario, the setting was a... Um, I described it as kind of like one of those, like, bomb villages, those, like, 50s-era, you know, small-town America recreations that were used to test uh, the impact of an atomic bomb. So it's that kind of thing. So lots of like fake, you know, um, if you think of like um, Indiana Jones and, and the Crystal Skull, uh, not the fridging, you know, thing, but the, um, the, the what do you call it? The, the other stuff, the setup with the, you know, cre- creepy, you know, mannequins and stuff. That's where they're, you know, where they're fighting. And it was a, the way that you um, resolve tasks in DC Heroes is, is part and parcel of the whole bidding process as well. And what you do is, you know, for your first roll initiative, and initiative is 1d10 plus your initiative stat plus whatever hero points you're spending on it. And characters have, at least these characters, have between about 50 and 60 hero points to in, in total. You, you usually would get more, at least that at the end of a, a session as well, too, or at the end of an adventure. Um, so the characters did end up spending pretty fast and furious on this. And um, the... The neat thing was the so with the the initiative, the way that it works is the characters roll one d ten plus their thing, and then what we do is from lowest initiative score up to highest, everyone describes what they're doing. And what you can do each round is you can do one um, 
dice action, which is uh, an action that requires you to be rolling against somebody, and up to two non-dice actions. So examples they give are like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly into, I'm gonna activate my my flight power, fly inside this warehouse, look around, and if I see someone there that is an enemy, I'm gonna blast them. You know, there's a lot of contingent uh, stuff that you put in your description of your uh, of your powers, and. Um, it took us a couple of rounds to sort of get the flow of it, but I feel like by the end of the session, we were really getting the flow. And the neat thing is you, you go from the lowest roll, and then the next person up makes their declaration. And they get to make that declaration based on what you did and so forth. And then we go to the top with the highest initiative results, and then we go from there down, and we take actions. So the players will take their actions from highest down to lowest. And then it makes up for some interesting situations where like you were trying to do something and then fuck like they either got out of the way or like something dramatic changed things or someone responded it like the most interesting sort of interrupt thing that happened was uh we had three characters so shade the if you don't know these characters um the nutshell sort of explanation bronze tiger is a badass martial artist ninja assassin uh deadshot has um, like uh, 45s uh, or uh, like fully automatic, not fully, but uh, automatic 45s on his wrists and he's the best shot in the world uh, and um, with a gun at least and um, pa, 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 or one of, I should say, I think Green Arrow technically is better, but in any event um, the uh, Shade the Changing Man, his big power is, uh, he has this weird vest, this uh, Titec vest that creates this crazy force field that can also cause fear in those who see it as it warps, you know to bring out images from their subconsciousness. And um, the big thing that was was him is that uh, Bronzeiger was real sneaky and could hit really hard and had a lot of versatility because of his, his kung fu skills. Um, Deadshot was a deadly uh, accurate at range, but also had some other decent things. And then Shade was just really, really tough because of his force field. Uh, so, you know, um, the there was one scene or one round where Shade rolled worse. So he's like, well... He demanded, you know, the last round, so-and-so demanded that I surrender. So I'll just surrender now. So that's what he did. Then it was um, Deadshot. And he's like, I'm going to shoot Bronze Tiger. And then it was Bronze Tiger's turn. And Bronze Tiger was like, I'm going to grab Shade and pull him in the way so that Deadshot can't shoot me. And it was just, um, it was crazy fun. You know, it, it was, that was probably the best example of sort of this fun reactive stuff and it doesn't mean that you're screwed like in on um uh Deadshot's turn I, I allowed him I know he was going to shoot him but I didn't have him declare down to the specific type of uh, shot he was going to do the system also allows you to kind of you know risk a reward in addition to spending the points you could also like try and take penalties to hit to try and do more damage or you could try you know uh, take penalty uh, take uh, get a bonus to hit to do less damage they call a flailing attack and uh, the characters or the players made really good use of that as well too. So it just felt like there was a lot of options, like tactically in the game, but it also felt very cinematic and very superhero-ish, you know. And again, even though they were playing street-level heroes, it felt like really fun, high-action stuff, you know. Consequential, every shot mattered. It was, it was really cool. Um, we also saw got to saw the or got to see the impact of timely high dice rolls as well too, because there's a couple times where. Uh, one of the players just killed it on their, uh, you know, their initiative roll, and um, uh, one of the players just did, uh, you know, a shit ton more damage to um, to one of the players uh, or one of the characters just because they rolled so many times. And remember, every 
two points over your target number, you're going to be able to shift a column, which results in bigger, you know, a bigger impact, more result AP. So it was great, you know, and I mean, I asked the players afterwards, and we didn't even get into some of the really interesting subsystems like the subplot. Um, you know, the way that XP is rewarded in the game, there's specific things that uh, the players can plan on, like good role-playing gets it uh, expressly, saving innocence gets it expressly, and what they do is, for each uh, parcel, you figure out what the, um, you know, what the uh, scale of the threat is, and that gives you an idea of what the standard award of XP is, or hero points is, and then you'd parcel out, uh, you know, uh, one reward for each of those things, what for participating in the thing. You get some XP for or hero points for showing up. You also get some for role-playing well. You get from some for like great plans. You get some for saving innocence. You get some uh, as well if you play out your subplot. And what a subplot is, is it's just a story element that you introduce that isn't part of the main ongoing plot. But it's it, the thing that is the most interesting about it uh, is we didn't see it in play yet, so I mean, I could be wrong here, but it, the thing that was interesting is that... Um, you get to see the, um, what do you call it? The, uh, uh, you get to um, dictate sort of what's being involved with it and how the subplot resolves. And if you decide that a subplot's boring, you know, you can just pull the plug on it and uh, uh, not have to deal with the, the subplot anymore. Uh, so it's a really cool, uh, well, it is a really a meaningful way, I think, is more cool, such a shitty way of describing things, which I do so often. But it's a meaningful way to allow the players to have not only specific involvement in what's going on in the story, but incentivize them to do that because they get extra hero points for it. So, And hero points are not only spent as narrative meta currency, they are also used to advance your character too. So um, on paper, like just looking at it, it always seemed to me that there was going to be too much. Like you, you would end up with... Um, you know, uh, too much of a, of a reward uh, each time that players would go up too quickly. But now seeing how they spend it in play and how important that is, um, I don't know. I really, uh, I really like it. I want to, uh, uh, what do you call it? I really want to see how um, how it plays out in actual play. And we're gonna like we all, we all decided we were gonna. Uh, we it was a game we enjoyed enough to to play again. And I've been. I bought, uh, specifically to, for this purpose, I bought an old adventure called Operation Atlantis. And it's a crazy adventure about the character. It's a, members of the Suicide Squad who get involved in Atlantean politics. Uh, the, if you're not familiar with the 80s Suicide Squad, um, it's not quite as just like bombastic as what the film or some of the, the TV shows are. It was very, very, very politically conscious. And it was very... Um, it featured a lot of the geopolitics of the 80s. Like, it, it had... Uh, there was Soviet villains and stuff like that, but not in a jingoistic Rocky Four kind of way, in a much more gritty 70s, you know, criti criticism of... Uh, criticizing the country kind of stuff. Like, it was a really unique uh, comic of the time, and it holds up pretty darn well, too. Uh, so uh, that's what we... I, and, and actually, like, instead of running the game in the present, I said, no, no, fuck it. Like, we'll, we'll, in the spirit of, um, the film Atomic Blonde, which is this amazing espionage action film set in the 80s, uh, right during the, uh, fall of the, of the uh, Berlin Wall, um, we wanted to do that. We're doing 80s, uh, what do you call it, uh, 80s, uh, Suicide Squad, which is going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> it's going to be so much fun. And um, and the neat thing with it too, like we were talking, one of the things I, I like a great deal as well about the subplot thing, 
One of the problems with playing, you know, uh, characters, like licensed characters in uh, in this stuff, well, I hope I make it, there we go, um, is that uh, sometimes it just feels like you're not really given a lot of agency over the character. You just happen to be playing that. And some people really like doing that. Like, they, they just, they enjoy playing other, you know, they want to play the, the, the big guys. They want to play Batman or Superman or whatever. Um, there's tons of people who like creating their own characters as well, too, but... You know, it's cool if you do that, but DC Adventures or DC Heroes is the first superhero game that I can think of where you're expressly playing licensed characters, but not only is the DM given um, agency to create stories with these pre-existing characters, these classic characters, it also encourages the players to do it with a subplot, you know? And... That related to another conversation we were having about how interesting it is that there's so many different versions of these characters. You know, like many of these characters have been in continual print, you know, every month since the 19, late 1930s. You know, so um, we're coming up on 80 years of, uh, or exceeding as 80 years now, of, uh, of Batman and Superman. Um, and it's, um, and Wonder Woman. Uh, and it, it's cool. Like, it's really, really cool that the game... Um, gives you the tools to kind of make your own take on it. And and with so many different takes on superheroes and so much different media right now, too, I think it's a great time to uh, to run licensed characters. Or great, You've got some good pre-existing za- samples of, like, you know, Batman from The Dark Knight is not Batman from the Adam West show, is not Batman from ba- Batman v Superman, is not Batman from 80, Batman 89. They're all very different takes. They're all Batman, but they're not the same Batman, you know, and that's the same kind of, I think, um, you know, or, or is the one from Titans for that matter, the TV show, you know, you can, you can look to different, um, types of things and use that as your, as your starting point of reference for how the players can make licensed characters their own. And I, I think that's really, really cool. It's, it makes me very excited to run this game. Not only because I really love the DC, uh, characters, I, I love both DC and Marvel. I usually, um, the way I sort of say it is I, I like the DC characters, I think, better, but I used to read more Marvel. Um, and it's and that's certainly a, just such a small, um, you know, infinitesimally small uh, difference. Like, I, it doesn't really... I love Marvel characters as well, too, but for these uh, DC ones, it's really, really cool seeing um, how the... That you can take and, and run them in different iterations. Not even like having to go as extreme as like some of the Elseworlds things where it's, you know, like um, the Justice League in the Old West or, you know, Justice League in the future or whatever. Like you can take modern day, you know, um, Green Lantern and have different approaches to how you're going to have that, uh, that character expressed at the table. So that's got me very excited for, um, for yeah, I mean... It, it, for all sorts of reasons, uh, you know, all the things I've, I've discussed here uh, and the scaling, I guess the last thing I'll say is the scaling. I, I'm so impressed with what a good job the uh, the game does for scaling the um, uh, the powers, you know, the relative power level. It's, it makes it more, I mean, I'm, we're not doing this in Suicide Squad, but it makes it conceivable that you could have, you know, uh, a Justice League with Batman, Superman, you know, Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, without anyone feeling like they're playing second banana, you know? I mean, 
Green Arrow's not going to be able to do what Superman does, but he will have his own things that he's badass at, you know? And uh, that's pretty exciting. I mean, that, 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 I think, makes for a really good game. Um, the one thing I will say is that two of my younger players did mention that the game felt, uh, with the chart, with having to continually go to the chart, it felt dated. Uh, they said it wasn't a deal-breaker by any means, and they, and they saw the value in the chart, but they said they felt that you know modern games would more likely um, find a more streamlined way of doing it. Um, I don't. I mean, I that, that that's a good thing to bear in mind um, that they enjoyed the game as much as they did without having to, you know, in spite of it feeling like an old older game. Um, but I don't. You know, I just don't know whether you could get the full free range of options and whatnot with the the column shifts and the spending hero points and the la la and all that stuff that uh, you get with the benefit of the of the chart. I, I get it. Definitely means you're constantly going to a chart to sort of resolve things. But I really really enjoyed it I, I said at the time you know like it, that it might be my favorite superhero game right now and I am pretty sure I'm standing by that right now I love super I love uh, champions I love uh, mutants and masterminds I love uh, you know um, uh, Marvel superheroes but every single one of those I've got some caveat that I say like well but there's this you know yeah but the champions takes quite a while to, to get through for it you know eh. and it feels a little bit rock paper scissors um the uh, DC Adventures, the, the swinginess of the D20 is, is kind of, eh, it's not my thing. When you can, when an average thug can, you know, roll a nat 20 and get a, and tag a flash, that doesn't happen in, um, I mean, it happens, it, it, in theory, could happen in DC Heroes, but the likelihood of it happening is, is not 5%. You know, it is a much, much more remote chance of, of someone with a handgun tagging the flash when he's moving at super speed. Um, so, in that way, the, I think the, um, the DC Heroes does a better job of emulating the source material. And Marvel Superheroes, I, I mentioned in the last segment how Marvel Superheroes is sort of everything exists in its own silo. So, you know, Aunt May's chance of hitting an old lady or hitting Galactus or hitting Spider-Man is about the same, um, absent the other party doing anything. And I kind of like that this sets up things as relative because it allows me as the DM to scale the game around the heroes. And uh, I, I'm used to doing that in things like Pathfinder 2 and Starfinder and D&D 4th. So it, it's nothing new for me. But I love how it can allow me, um, it allows me to let the players feel like the utter badasses they should be in some circumstances. You know, like when they're clearing out a bunch of just thugs or mercenary goons or whatever, mafia, you know, mafia guys or blah, blah, blah. I, I love in superhero games how badass heroes can feel, how just they can mop the floor with these these miners. And this game, I think, gives really good opportunities to do that and allows the players to... There's an actual game of it as well, too, you know, with uh, uh, making decisions as to making it more difficult to hit and, and so forth. And also um, um, the hero point spends. So. so overall, I mean, the it may not be surprising to learn that my resounding um, conclusion on this is that I thoroughly love DC Heroes RPG. It's, it's a white whale of mine that took me years to actually finally get to the table. And holy crap, is it. It definitely was worth the wait. So I would expect to see more DC Heroes RPG in the future on the old Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. All right, so I've also... Let's see here. This weekend, we also had another session of Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and another session of our um, Legacy of the Crystal Shard games. And both of those were really, really great. Uh, I mean, the the Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea one was session 42 of our ongoing game. And, I, you know, that, that game is just... Uh, an, 
it is such a joy playing it. Not only the game, uh, the game is, is good, and you know, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to play the game with, with the guy, with the group I play with, but like we're coming up on two years uh, right now with um, with this particular group, and they are just, a to- it's an absolute and utter joy playing with them. I laugh my ass off every time we play. Um, there's great camaraderie, not only with the players, but with the characters as well, too. Uh, we're in a, for a game that uh, I felt like it kind of stumbled a little bit there because of how I, you know, what I put the guys up against. Um, I, I feel like we've hit sort of that, uh, a nice sweet spot again of uh, doing stuff in the game and, and seeing rewards come in. That's making it fun for everyone involved. So that's pretty great. Um, and then the Legacy of the Crystal Shard game, it's, it's interesting because after running... Um, you know, Pathfinder 2 recently, and uh, West End Star Wars, and, um, oh gosh, uh, D&D 5th, I, I mentioned that in the podcast as well, too, how much fun I've had with those. There's so many good games that, that I've played the last little while. Savage Worlds is really great. Um, not, uh, the Expanse RPG is really great. Like, there are so many really, really good games. It was good to have a session uh, this past weekend with AD&D 2nd that was really, really good. I just really felt like, uh, the, and this doesn't take anything away from the Ash. The Ash game was terrific. Um, the thing with the with the Legacy of the Crystal Shard one is that we started doing, we're in the, the uh, section of the campaign where the guys are making their way overland uh, through the um, the tundra and the Icewind Dale towards the Regged Glacier, which where they hope to find this ancestral spot where the uh, Regged tribesmen uh, live, and, and they hope to find their adversary there. Where we're in right now, though, is random rolls for, you know, we're in that survival mode again that we were in at the start of our Ash game. And I love those rules so much. <laughs> like, they're so good. You know, having, um, and it's, I mean, having that be the, the game all the time would get tiresome, but it is really, really fun after so much story stuff to see the players just, you know, jumping into you know, making decisions about hunting each day and realizing that, well, shit, this will keep us, it'll, it'll you know, delay our, our travel. It, it exposes us to, you know, to uh, random encounters. Uh, they're looking for firewood every day. And then if they don't find it, then they need to, they could spend extra time doing it. But every time they, you know, spend extra time that they, they potentially run across stuff. And um, uh, we also have um, the, the uh, Icewind Dale Legacy, I'm sorry, uh, Rise of the Frost Maiden. The newest uh, adventure for um, D and D fifth edition is out, and there is a ton of great resources in that that I'm making use of in our Icewind Dale game. So tons of great you know new stuff. Now, if you don't know the Legacy of the Crystal Shard adventure, there's really not much to it. There's some descriptors. There's you know some um, uh, some maps, and there's some good uh, illustrations. But there's not really a lot in the way of like new interesting monsters or things like that. Well, Rise of the Rhyme of the Frost Maiden is chock full of amazing stuff. Great monsters, really evocative stuff, neat ideas. I'm not. I'm going to try and not. Well, I'm, there's some stuff that just isn't tonally consistent with how we've been presenting uh, the Icewind Dale. So we're not going to steal some of that stuff. They present um, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden as being like the the next horror game, and it cites a lot of. Some, like a lot of really awesome uh, in, inspirations, and there definitely is a horror tone to it, but there also is a distinctly high fantasy tone. And we haven't been leaning too, too heavily into that. I mean, in, not in the sense of, uh, like, you know, um, lots of... Go- There's kobolds that are in kind of a silly encounter 
or funny encounter in uh, *Rhyme of the Frost Maiden*, uh, and that I would not be, at, at, you know, at home in um, in this game. Um, so uh, there, there are that. That said, though, there's some like amazing monsters and things like that. So it's a, yeah. I mean, it's it's really adding in some of those new uh, monsters in thinking about, you know, how we're in the, the final chapter, you know, we're in the third chapter or third act of this um, game, like the, the characters are sort of moving towards confronting one of the biggest adversaries. Um, and I can't, I do say that quite a bit, but I honestly don't know, like the, the neat thing, the neat thing that's been with this campaign is that, you know, we definitely know when certain chapters are sort of finished, uh, but there is absolutely going to be, you know, um, there is more going on right now than uh, than just defeating or facing the, um, you know, the the main or one of the main villains in this. So I don't know. I mean, like, um, we for that particular campaign, it was originally designed to be only a quarantine, like quarantine uh, length game. We'd play it, thinking that we'd only be locked up for a couple of months, and then we'd go back. Well, we're eight months in, and like, I'm not going back to the office anytime soon. You know, I mean, I uh, it still appears that I'm going to be working from home for the foreseeable future, and then with so that means that the and the campaign we've you know um, we initially had at one point like ten players which was crazy, but as I expected we bled off a lot of players as as either they got busy or you know summer came and they started doing other things, um, or life changed or it wasn't the game for them. Although I don't think anyone's dropped out because of that. Um, we have about uh, a dependable like four or five every time, and that's that's great. You know when we when we are able to run it and. Now that I've been caught up in my... I've, got, I've still got two more charity games to do, but only one of them i got to write and run. Um, I've been dipping back into prepping other, like, pickup games. And uh, the nice thing with that is that it allows me to... Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, it allows me to um, to run... I'm sorry, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to get through this intersection here. Uh, it allows me to run pickup games. So other games that I've got on my hit list uh, that I have not had a chance to run yet, uh, I get opportunities to do that now uh, because if we don't have enough players, we'll just run some one of our pickups, you know? And uh, it's been great, you know? I mean, it has... Um, uh, it's given us a... Oh, uh, given us an opportunity to run a lot of games while still keeping this Legacy of the Crystal Shard one going. Um, and this last session, it was just so fun seeing how things just sort of developed. You know, like we saw that. Um, oh, just one moment here. Oh, so, what I'm going to talk about next is the things that have sort of um, have developed over the course of our uh, campaign, or the last session, I should say. Uh, sorry about that. I had to uh, snag something. Um, so the um, the session, the thing that made it so so. I don't know, just so fun was like seeing the diversion of instead of being, you know, uh, fighting something necessarily or trying to invade a lair or delve a dungeon or sort of political stuff. It was just the players interfacing with the survival mechanisms. You know, it was them deciding who was going to look for firewood and who was going to hunt and tracking their progress and checking the weather each day and then them responding to what the next day, you know, uh, spurned on them. And then interacting with that as well, there was this interesting encounter we had where the players, um, uh, they faced a uh, a type of, uh, basically a type of wraith uh, that uh, ended up draining 
uh, some constitution, and then, then that had a spillover effect when the players started having to make uh, fatigue checks uh, because they were traveling through heavy snow or traveling through you know gale force winds, both of which were randomly determined. And it just had this really, and then they were also running short of food and then also encountering other things. And like, it just, it's that confluence of interesting developments and, you know, and challenges that just makes that, that um, part of the game so fun. You know, I, I really, really, I, I've talked before about how much I, I adore the Wilderness Survival Guide and, uh, I need to put together a, a summary of like my, what my um, what my wilderness survival rules are because I, I grab from from that I grab from um, the uh, uh, what do you call it I mean some of the stuff I've come up with myself and I grab from the uh, um, the uh, what what's it called the um, ultimate wilderness book which is what I use for determining um, the weather uh, each day, because I, I really like Ultimate Wilderness quite a bit. You know, the um, it just it makes for a really, really satisfying game. And um, and the, the and I guess and the other thing is, is the walking wounded element of it is so good, you know, that players, you know, after a violent encounter, it's more, it's scarier, right? Like, it's, it's more tense when they're making their way along without full hit points. And I love that there are, even though the characters are fifth and sixth level, I think, maybe, maybe only fifth, um, but in any event, they have access to third-level spells. A lot of those spells they prepare that are third-level ones relate to travel. I know for a fact that one of the pl- two of the players are playing rangers because they knew that there was going to be a lot of outdoor stuff in this game, and one of them uh, picked a god that had the travel domain because that gave access to spells that made survival easier. You know, and be with how limited spells are in those or in the. Uh, what do you call it? In the older editions, I, I I love that you know players can make the call to be like, okay, I want this to be part of my you know um, part of my uh, character's makeup or my my player's uh, spell roster, and assign some of those limited resources towards addressing a part of the game that isn't just killing stuff, isn't just combat. I think it, it, it allows you to gamify in a really fun and satisfying way some of the other elements of the game. And um, what, like I said, I mean, that it definitely reminded me of the things I love about AD&D, uh, and particularly AD&D 2nd with uh, the proficiencies. Um, I know in, a, the proficiencies were introduced in the first AD&D, or AD&D 1st edition, but it's, it's just so satisfying Um seeing all, you know, all that come together. Uh, I just love the game. Yeah, it's just, it's such a good game. And with, um, with some of the other games I've talked about that I've been, you know, really, really taken by in the last little while, uh, Pathfinder 2 in particular, I just like, I, as much as I, I, I don't think Pathfinder 2 is going to, I mean, going to replace any existing games. AD&D does what it does so well. Uh, you know, we, we've tweaked the, um, the game, uh, yes, there are more house rules that I apply to that than I do for Pathfinder 2, but I love the game that we've, you know, with all the tweaking and whatnot in it, I love the way that game is uh, is put together. And um, I, I just, it's so much fun how it plays out, and I'd like to be able to figure out how to capture some of that stuff in um, D&D 5th and PF2. You know, like, I mean, I, I get that they are different games, and uh, you're supposed to, you know, the 
the ability to get back to zero or a default state of like full hit points, full resources, full things. That is kind of, you know, baked into both of those games. But I think that there are ways uh, that you can, uh, like, say, the fatigue mechanic in D&D 5th and, say, the different conditions that require uh, long-term rest in Pathfinder 2. There are ways to make uh, the experience of overland travel feel more tangible and more meaningful using those uh, those newer games. So, um, you know, combining some of the cinematic fun, um, you know, stuff that we've got in those ones, the great tactical encounters you get in uh, PF2, the ease of play in, in uh, D&D, in the kind of D&D 5th, the cinematic uh, kind of epic scope, and then the... Um, I don't know, the like, grittiness or real, you know,ness of uh, AD&D. I think that uh, those all... And the, and the weirdo um, magic items, too. Like, boy, I love how much the players enjoy the, the magic items that they've been receiving in that game. They seem to thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it, and uh, uh, that's just great, you know? Like, the, the I make a great use of the um, uh, Encyclopedia Magica uh, that my parents got me uh, for my birthday a couple of years back, and it's really, really fun giving those uh, players an opportunity to uh, to do something fun, you know, something different uh, that that isn't just like a plus one sword or whatever. So, yeah, um, AD&D is a terrific game. I love that uh, campaign, and of course, our Night Below campaign is just so much fun. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that transitioning into a different stage right now too. Like we're we're sort of players are making their way to a new area that they haven't been to yet. They're waiting to see what they're going to experience there. And I'm really, really excited for what I've got planned for them once they reach there. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty interesting. I think, I hope, I hope. So what other games do I have on the, on the uh, hopper right now? Well, I, I posted some stuff. I really want to get, um, I posted a photo of a bunch of other games that I would like to get to the table. The games that I've, I've said that I wanted to get back to the table, again, um, include uh, Call of Cthulhu, the, the Old West version, um, Down Darker Trails. Uh, I've also mentioned uh, Champions, Star Wars Saga Edition, the, the, mo- the last version of the um, D20 Star Wars that uh, Wizards of the Coast put up, excuse me, out, and... Um, Star Trek, uh, the 2D20 Star Trek game. Um, but, you know, for now, uh, we, we have also recently started talking about, you know, what we want to play after the uh, current uh, campaign, the uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard one wraps up. Because it's been fun having those rotating, you know, uh, having a game that will always run on the weekends regardless of who the players are, uh, but also having some, you know, solid alternates. And... It's really, you know, we are in a very good position where we've all grown familiar with a bunch of different games, and there's just so many good ones. You know, every one of the games that, that we ran, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed them, uh, that we've run over the last little while, uh, including the, um, you know, the Legacy of the, the, uh, the charity one-shots uh, that we've had over the last little while. Uh, in particular, the, uh, uh, gosh, what are, what are the... Uh, like the Savage Worlds one, the um, the Modern Age one, uh, the um, I don't know what were the other ones I ran. Oh, Conan! Conan was, was a shit ton of fun as well too. It really just a matter of figuring out like what what do we what are the things that work best in 
uh, one shots or short campaigns. What are the things that work best in long campaigns? And for the pickup games and the you know the things that like we had recently a, a three part uh, ex, um, the expanse thing. Um, those were good, you know, like, uh, and that's probably closer to what we used to do with when we started the last year with just sort of running or at the beginning of this year, I suppose, where we're just going to pick certain games and run them for a little bit and then be done with them and move on to a new game. The thing with that is that it, there is something about a long-term campaign that I just, I really, really love. And it's not just the familiarity with the game, though that's part of it. And it's not just the familiarity with the players, though that's part of it. Um, it's the, you know, it's the lived experience of being in that fictional world for such a long time. Uh, and there are benefits that come from it, you know. Um, it's building story on a more tangible foundation where you're making, you know, these characters and, and whatnot, and you're making the um, decisions for, um, you know, what, what's going to happen with these characters, but you've also got so much backstory it's so much history to, to build on you know and it's and and it's also where you get a chance to see those characters develop over time right and you need a system that will allow that that and I think as well with I think you need a system that keeps things at a reasonable pace of advancement um, I tend towards taking a lot longer you know with um, with games where I, I, I love having as I've said in the podcast before, the kind of smell the roses pacing of, uh, of development where the characters are having an opportunity to, uh, to really just, you know, enjoy their settings and explore and interact with whatever stuff they want. Um, that's very important to me. And it's one of the things that makes the world more tangible. You know, it, it allows those unexpected developments to, to come up where you didn't, um, you know, you didn't expect the uh, certain a certain thing to be uh, important to the players until they got they were exposed to it. Suddenly, it's a big deal. Um, it's just a you know, it's something about that that I really enjoy. But I'm mindful of that. Some of my players also really love short term things or like games that we, you know, uh, that I, I don't think I really would be interested in running on a long term basis. So, you know, like uh, John, uh, my buddy John loves 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 uh, Pathfinder. You know, and first edition. And I enjoy running that, uh, and I enjoy running it for him too, because it's it's always good playing with someone who knows the system better than what you do, and um, it's also um, yeah, I mean it's also uh, nice to run. I don't know, it's nice to have that that interspersed thing. So I have those available, and I feel like I've got the energy for that right now, where I can prep one or two backups and uh, be and be ready to run those when we when need be. Um, while still focusing on on games that holistically reward that type of long term play, and I'm the thing with Pathfinder Two. The next time I run it, I am going to slow advancement down to the pace that it is at in our AD and D games to really spend time and inhabit each of those levels longer than what we, you know, uh, than what I've done in other games. Like you know, our Barrow Maze games have not gone past uh, about 25 or 27 sessions and characters have been reaching 5th and 6th level you know in the course of that uh, that adventure um, conversely in our Night Below campaign which is at 70 sessions I think 7-0 sessions right now um, that game has our highest level character at level 7 
and our lowest is either four or five. So, you know, um, for some that might be an interminable length of um, of time uh, for them to be, you know, playing in uh, in in just one game and not seeing advancement. But I feel like the, I mean, we look at what the players have done and what they've, uh, you know, what they've uh, participated in. It, they certainly have had just a shit ton of fun you know they've done a lot in that time and it doesn't feel like they've been lagging behind um and they certainly haven't been complaining no one's mentioned when are we hitting level whatever you know um and part of that i think is because it's it's down to the xp that's gained so i would i'd actually probably retrofit an xp system from AD&D onto um pathfinder uh and just advance, you know, advise, uh, give the, the rewards for a lot of the stuff that I would uh, typically reward in that, like the defeating adversaries, defeating obstacles, role-playing, that kind of stuff. Uh, the one thing that you get lots of XP for in 2nd Edition, you don't Pathfinder, is gear, and I probably wouldn't change that because gear and money makes you, uh, like, um, more powerful in Pathfinder 2, objectively. And I, I don't want to do that. I don't want it to be, um, you know, something that makes them too darn powerful. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that would be something so that they know what their progress is while, uh, it isn't allowing us to go up so quickly, you know, the way that, cause I think in, in Pathfinder, your XP, you're, you're going up every, uh, 1000 and I, I'm just not interested in trying to figure out what the magic number is that will slow things down, but we can be going up a level every 10 or 12 sessions. Um, that's going to be good enough for me. Pathfinder 2 also, is, it doesn't make you feel like chumps at first level. So you certainly have more opportunities to, uh, you know, to uh, to feel like you're playing a you're playing a, a actual adventurer as opposed to, you know, a bush league wannabe. So you're not stuck at like first level the way first level is in AD and D second or say fifth edition. Um, so that's it. I probably I think that's that's everything I got to say for uh, for this. And I think that my Pathfinder section was probably even for me a little rambly. So my apologies for that. But let's make it with the outro. Okay, so I think that is it for another episode. So as is always the case, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the episode, please do not hesitate to leave me a voice message on Anchor. Oh, and I want to say hi as well. A um, uh, You can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can send me an email hi. at uh, dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can uh, also find a link to the Dungeon Musings Discord server on any of our recent episodes on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, and you are more than welcome to join us there as well. I am active there daily, and uh, many of our other players and uh, a ton of other fine, fine folk are there, and you are more than welcome to join us and join the conversation there. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for joining me for this. I apologize for the very infrequent nature of this. This is, unfortunately, my recording the podcast is a casualty of the current ongoing crisis. And speaking of which, if you are listening to this during the current crisis, I do hope that this finds you healthy, uh, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. I hope that I've given you an hour or so of uh, time to take your mind off of the troubles of our world and think about some of the cockamamie things that I get up to in my games and what I got planned for the future. And until I speak to you again, happy gaming.